Welcome to Meet Me in the Middle, the podcast that seeks the middle ground, but still lets you vote with your conscience rather than along party lines. <laughs> oh, that was good. Today, um, we're going to chat a little bit about how the left-leaning wellness industry and far-right politics got a crossover show. (laughs) I'm Annika Buckle. I have a political science and women's studies degree, and I'm in the middle of an existential crisis. One day, you're not going to be in the middle of an existential crisis, and it's going to be like- I'm going to say then. (laughs) It's going to be a life-changing intro change. People who have been listening along will be like, what the crisis is over now what do you do i'll have its own dedicated episode to talk about the transition out of that um i am jenny omani i am a registered nurse working in critical care and a business owner so today we're going to talk about an interesting phenomenon that is uh more ubiquitous than just within the wellness world but um as kind of that's the focus of what we chat about here um is particularly relevant within the wellness world especially within the last two years um and so we're going to chat a little bit about how the left-leaning wellness world has uh good chunks of it have become radicalized by the far right so we're going to go on a little political science walkabout first (laughs) um And uh, we're going to define what I mean when I say left and right, because it doesn't necessarily mean the same thing everywhere. And because I think it's important to be really clear around politics. So much of what is in the mainstream discourse that I see and in the media assumes that everyone is starting with a fairly deep base knowledge. And I never want to assume that because I know from my own experience that that's not always true. Um, And I also know that very often, either explicitly or implicitly, it's easy to mentally assign those words to political parties. I think that's how our brains tend to work, like Democrat, Republican, liberal, conservative. The problem with this is that very few parties actually fall perfectly along these descriptors. In Canada, for example, the Liberal Party is very much a centrist party more than a left party. And the same can be seen with the Democratic Party in the U.S., But interestingly, if you listen to like public commentary about the Liberal Party, you would think that they were like the extreme left. (laughs) But people on the left who have more left-lying views are like, no, they're very right. (laughs) It's really, it's very much kind of a like catch-22 of like the left isn't left enough for the left, but the left Mm -hmm. is also too far left for the right. It's like you try Mm -hmm. to be everything to everyone and everyone is mad at you. Well, and also in the States, if you're American, you have two parties, but in Canada, right. we, we have three main parties and like a couple, actually a far left and a far right sort of, I don't want to say upcoming. Cause I really don't want one of them to <laughs> more fringy to rise up. I know Fringier. I'm trying, but, but middle. Um, yeah. So like we actually have more, um, parties, which I actually think is a good thing. I always will default to more representation is better, even if it's people that you don't agree with. I could mm-hmm. do, a, you know, we could have a whole episode where we talk about um, the, uh, I'm not going to call it a coalition, but the agreement, no. the goods and yeah. services agreement between um, the NDP and the liberals that just happened fairly recently here in Canada, whether you agree with those political parties or not, um, my feeling is always more parties at the table means more people's voices are being heard means more democracy is happening. So that's always going to be my own personal bias. 
Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. And um, I think a lot of people, like if you watch American media where they are talking about, you know, as unbiasedly as possible, left and right, it's very easy because they only have two parties. So one is what they would consider left, one is right. Um, but in Canada, that just gets a little bit grayer because there's multiple parties. And also our version of left versus what the, you know, like our left party, I'm using air quotes, which would be more NDP, um, is actually doesn't align, compl align completely with uh, the Democrats, right? So who's left, right? Like there's, it's a spectrum for sure. A hundred percent. And actually that's a perfect little lead into a little bit more history. We'll just briefly touch on oh, these yeah, terms. Me. <laughs> Good Segwaying job. Like a boss. Um, you just put that, you just put that golf ball on the tee and I'm just going to knock it right out of the park. That's those. I'm not sporty. I don't have sports. So I mix a lot of metaphors. So you picked golf. Perfect. <laughs> and then also baseball. Um, so these terms were very, were um, first used during the 1789 French Revolution when members of the National Assembly divided into supporters of the king to the president's right and supporters of the revolution to his left. For give or take about the next hundred years, the terms left and right were not exclusively used to refer to political ideology, but actually just literally to seating in the legislature. You'll still see that in a lot of places, um, how uh, things are organized uh, in terms of where people physically sit. But over time, as language has evolved, P.S. Language always evolves to anyone who's still arguing about the use of they as a singular pronoun. But anyway, that's a topic for another day. <laughs> anyway, as language evolved, those on the left often called themselves Republicans, which at the time meant favoring a republic, so elected officials, over a monarchy, while those on the right often called themselves conservatives. These terms became easy to bucket into the binary, which we just love to do, and their use traveled across the world as more democracies required more descriptors for their parties and affiliations. All of this to say, if we want to reduce it down to something simple, as we use it now, the left tends to seek social justice through redistrib redistributive social and economic policies, while the right tends to defend private property and capitalism. And it oh. all started with beheadings. <laughs> L literally. I didn't know that. Yeah, I know. Fun, right? Yeah. All so. surrounded by a guillotine. <laughs> As most good history. It a, began a literal with guillotine. Beheadings. And now we have many figurative guillotines. <laughs> So if that all feels very simplistic, it's because it is, but it gives us a good jumping off point because this is not an episode about the history of democracy. <laughs> of note as well before we move forward is that many democracies around the world, including but not limited to Canada, we just do it in quite a unique way, have leading parties that are considered big tent or catch-all parties. This is exactly what we were just touching on. Um, they don't cleave so neatly along ideological lines, but encourage a broad spectrum of views within members. This is actually a really important concept that we'll come back to, this idea of a big tent or a catch-all party um, later on. So let's get into ways that the left-right spectrum landscape is changing and has changed over the last two years in particular. I know that we have had many conversations, you and I, uh, Jenny, expressing surprise that our previously crunchy friends who, you know, might have been coming from like not vaccinating their kids, buying organic groceries, making their own soaps, likely voted green or something more liberal left are suddenly backing parties or people on the far right who or who are considered conservative. I think we saw this a lot in the last election here in Canada, at least I did. Um, that was kind of surprising. I don't know what your experience around that was, Jenny, but. 
Yeah. I mean, I literally went in group chats with people who, when Trump was initially elected, who were what there was one American in the chat were like, what the hell are you guys doing down there? And just like, like horrified to, I mean, uh, yeah, like pretty aggressive, uh, anti-Trudeau rhetoric, but coming from a conservative side, not like from a liberal, um, yeah. Critical of, yeah, yeah. yeah. Not like yeah. critical of him because he's not doing what he said he would do in his platform. Right. <laughs> but like critical of him because of, you know, vaccine policy and public health and whatnot. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and and I actually think- most of these people were not anti-vaccine in my particular, they were actually, all their kids were up to date with their vaccines. Uh-huh. But right. now I do wonder if they were to have more kids, which they won't like just based on where they're, the phases of their lives are at, if they yeah. would actually the rhetoric they received regarding to the COVID vaccine would spew into all of the vaccines. Yeah. It's interesting, right? How, how that shift kind of happens. So it might feel weird actually, if we're looking at this traditionally, because it feels like a total value swap, right? Mm -hmm. If political opinions are value-based, how can somebody do that much of a 180 degree shift but this is kind of what this all comes down to. And I actually super love talking about this. So I'm going to try to be concise and not um, too excitable and rambly, but we have seen this as a historical trend, but what we've seen ideologically over the last two years, more than ever, is that the left-right spectrum is not a straight line. The root of this is actually something called horseshoe theory, that the extreme left and the extreme right are actually closer to each other than they are to the political center. Thank you, Jean-Pierre Fay's 2002 book, The Century of Ideology, although that's not what it's called, but I'm not going to butcher the French title. That's Wait a minute, so 20, 20 years ago? Yeah. That, I thought that theory. was like a new, so new thing. Here, I would argue that the last few years have taken us from a horseshoe to actually a complete circle. Circle, totally. That the left goes so far left that it becomes right again. Yes. His kind of origination of the theory is just that the far left and the far right are closer to each other than they are to the middle. Um, but I think a lot of what we've seen over the last two years is that horseshoe has now become a full circle. I'm just, I find that fascinating. I actually, gen- I genuinely thought that was a new thing, but I guess fear, a whole lot of fear just close the horseshoe. Totally. Yeah. So the, the left goes so far left that it becomes right again. Right. And I think that's a lot of what we have seen, particularly in the wellness world. Mm -hmm. So shifting ideology as we change and age, of course, is not new. In fact, this is such a common occurrence that it spurns one of my absolute favorite quotes about this, which depending on how you Google it will variously be attributed to either Churchill, Clemenceau, and George Lloyd. So Any man who is not a socialist at age 20 has no heart. Any man who is still a socialist at age 40 has no head. (laughs) My husband and I love to joke about this quote because when I met him, I was quite fiercely left. And he was a man who admitted he would have voted for George W. Bush the second time. Keeping in mind, this was 2008 and he was still Mm -hmm. the worst thing to have happened in American politics in my mind. (laughs) where Mm -hmm. now bless my husband's heart. He's a man who just this year increased his company's benefits package to the maximum allowable because he didn't want any families to not be able to afford uh, orthodontics if they needed them. So I know. Dan. So I guess he has no head. (laughs) I guess he has no head. Or I would just argue he's got a bigger heart now. So I'm going to go ahead and take credit for that. (laughs) It's like the Grinch's heart grew six (laughs) that day. (laughs) 
The idea behind this quote, of course, is that with age comes the hardening of your heart and the throwing out of youthful ideals and optimism in favor of realism. The paradox of this is that very few people, if you speak to them, will actually view it as a change of their own politics, but instead a changing of the society around them or the politics around them. Oh my God, it's always somebody else. Right. Uh, <laughs> God, we're the worst. People are the worst. We <laughs> really are. We have no accountability. No, uh, no. P.S. The way you just said that made it sound like you think Winston Churchill said the that was a very Winston Churchill situation. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Yeah. So we, we really, we really don't want to believe that something as core as our political values have changed when the reality is sometimes that's just what happens. Well, and I think you see that, especially you don't see that as much that I'm familiar with anyways in Canada, but you do see in America, people being like our family votes Republican. Right. Um, is it, is it the blind side with Sandra Bullock? You know, the movie I'm talking about No. and they, okay, you have to go watch anyways, the the whole (laughs) joke is based on a true story. And the whole joke is they're like this waspy white family and they have like a tutor for that comes in and it's like, they're like, it's the first time there's a Democrat in the house is the (laughs) tutor anyways, but it's, but like, but I do have lots of American friends who's like their families vote. It's like an ideology for the, the family. Right. This is what our family does the end. Right. And I think that's part of, I mean, when we look at something that is held so strongly that it's not just even our own beliefs, but a lineage of beliefs behind us, we can't possibly get our heads around that. I might actually just, things might be shifting that I feel differently. It's like the world has changed. Our family has always been Republican, but Mm -hmm. the world is so crazy now that, you know, X, Y, and Z. So Mm. Um, so let's jam a little bit on kind of why this shift might be so prevalent in the wellness industry right now. So straight out of the gates, the wellness world and the world of kind of right conspiracies, or at least beliefs, even if we kind of don't want to go all the way to conspiracy, um, actually have a lot more cultural similarities than you'd think the questioning of authority, the focus on alternate, you know, medicine, government, the distrust of institutions generally, Now, in contrast to their kind of farther right counterparts, whose angst is primarily directed at, quote, elites, whoever that is, doesn't seem to be rich people. But anyways, again, that's a rant for a different soapbox. Confusing. It's like, (laughs) but like, what does that mean? Right. And so many very prominent examples of the elites are really rich people. Right. But not, but those aren't the ones that are the problem, right? No. Right. Right. Anyways, again, that's a a soapbox for a different day. (laughs) Um, So kind of rather than angst being generally at elites, the the boogeyman of elites, whoever that is, wellness qualms with centralized authority tend to be kind of aimed at like big pharma or Western medicine. Again, you kind of heavily finger quoting that. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. So what happened with the pandemic put the government as the face of public health policy. And all of a sudden we have a crossover episode. We have a common enemy between these two um, overlapping groups where previously they might've been separate circles. We're starting to kind of see a Venn diagram. Mm, yeah. Thanks to the, our local and federal governments for having the worst PR teams 
on the freaking planet. <laughs> Definitely doesn't help the distrust of institutions. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll come back to that in a minute, actually, because I think that that kind of is a, is a key kind of linchpin piece of what we're talking about here. So second, there's been lots of coverage from all kinds of both left and right rated sources about how social media algorithms have expedited this radicalization. So I'm not going to dive too much into that part of the story. There's lots and lots you can read around that. But I will just say sitting at home, worrying about our health and isolating us into online communities was good for exactly zero of us. <laughs> we From hate, a mental health perspective. Yeah, for sure. We hate not yeah. having answers. Our brains don't like not having answers, but when a person or group has confidence in an answer, when the rest of the world seems to be flailing, it's really attractive. It makes you feel safe. Yeah. Yeah. And that's ultimately what we hunger for as people. We want community and we want to feel safe. So the last point I kind of want to touch on in this is something that I think the right is doing really well that those who consider themselves more left-leaning can probably learn from. If you want to read more about this specifically, there's a fantastic article by Emma Johnson on The Breach that I'll link in our show notes. We see that we see those on both the left and the right who are critical of government who see their own lives get harder year over year. We only have to stop and look at things like inflation, the impossibility of rental housing in Vancouver, or stagnant wages to see where that comes from. Again, as we talked about, there is this crossover experience between both sides. As Johnson says in this article, both sides understood the system was rigged against them, but had been organized into radically different understandings of how it was rigged, and more importantly, what there was to be done about it. This is where I see that the right has made such huge strides into the wellness world. They have done a really good job of being a big tent party, much better than the left has. Both sides are, quote, fueled by economic deprivation, anti-government sentiment, distrust in mainstream science, and resentment against a liberal elite and their allies in the mainstream media. But where the left has kind of dug in and built a wall, like, if you're not with us, you're against us, and, like, don't misstep, you know, that kind of, vil- the, the right does a really good job of vilifying, like, the wokeness, right? Mm-hmm where the right now has tapped into much more widely held resentments. You can distrust mainstream medicine, you can distrust mainstream media or the government or any combination of those, and you will find resonant voices to join yours. Everyone is welcome, which is part of the reason that the more radical within it also find a voice and a seat at the table. When anti-Semitic views are just as welcome at the table, when thin blue line pins which is the blue lives matter, anti-black lives kind of symbol are also welcome at the table. This is another reason that we start to see this radicalization into the right, but it's also why so many feel welcomed and included. Well, and that's the thing. That's such a good point because when you've got a group that's like, Hey, come as you are. And then it sort of, the fallacies are pointed out like, gee, um, that's a really racist group you're promoting there. They're like, you know what? Um, there's a lot of context you're missing. This is taken out of context and uh, take what you like and leave the rest. And that phrase I find so harmful and damning. Take what you want, leave the rest because it just, you can, it just, it's just like a get out of jail free card for siding with part of, part of something that you agree with, even though the other equal half of it is like really, morally repugnant (laughs) right and again you know I think we so we have seen this even just this year in 2022 particularly in February in Canada if anyone Mm. was around for that um 
you know, I love, again, I'm going to go back to quoting Johnson from this article, the degree to which thousands are willing to come to, to come to the defense of the movement the second its racist and anti-Semitic elements are exposed, insisting that they're just a few bad apples is telling. It mm-hmm. proves their commitment to building and defending the biggest possible we against the smallest possible them. In this case, mm-hmm. the liberal establishment, mainstream media, and those of us naive enough to be under the spell of both. Mm-hmm. It's a brutal catch 22, but it again shows us the power in a movement, whether you like the movement or not, that is determined to build a really large group. Yeah. And when they specialize or when there's a group of people that specialize in goalpost moving too. Right. (laughs) Right. So yeah. Wow. It's, it really, I mean, that goalpost moving is very similar to, I think a lot of what we see within like kind of niche elements of the wellness world, which is like, oh, if it didn't work for you, you're not doing it right. Right. Mm -hmm. It's Mm -hmm. like, we can just always adjust. Oh, we missed this target. Well, we're just going to move the target over here and keep going. Mm -hmm. Yeah. The right is really effective at wielding polarization as a political tool. I know I've seen this deeply in the wellness world. How many times have you heard the cry of let's stop the division from people who then turn around and retweet incredibly divisive statements about how the government is tricking you and how can you be such an idiot? And I feel like not just the right, more the Mm alt-right. Do you know what I mean? Like, because it's not, yeah, because it's, it's that sort of extreme, like alt-right component that's really interested in the divisiveness. And honestly, it's quite brilliant the way that it's all been done. Not in a good way, but it's, it's, it's give credit where credit's due. They are bringing people over to that really aggressive alt, um, ultra conservative side and like people that were not conservative at all. So, well, and I think it's really interesting. And if we kind of come back to the idea of the horseshoe theory, I think that a lot of people who have been kind of radicalized into the far right actually wouldn't necessarily align themselves with other more moderate right-leaning policies, Mm -hmm. which I think, again, kind of highlights how the, the extremes are really closer together than they are to the, to the middle. And I want to be clear, like, this is by no means like the left is perfect and the right is the problem. I firmly believe, like we talked about at the beginning of the importance of multiple voices at the table. I have my own political views that take from a, a lot of different complex areas on complex issues. Um, but I think radicalization on either side is where it starts to be really dangerous. And I think that's true mm-hmm. on the left too. They just haven't done as good of a job as mobilizing as the far right has right now. No. And I think part of the, and I know this article that you're talking of, cause you've shared it with me and it's an excellent article, but part of what the, I don't want to say part of, I don't want to say problem. One of the things that, um, the left leaning has done poorly is because so much, um, conspiracy kind of pops up in these, um, explanations, these people that are so sure of themselves when experts in the area aren't sure of themselves, right. The armchair experts kind of come out is that you just kind of go, and I did this myself. You're just like, Oh my God, what an idiot. And that becomes the, the narrative, like how stupid are Uh you? Like, seriously, Uh like this, because it, you're like, I can't, you just, um, I'm speaking for myself and I'm showing my bias here because I a hundred percent have a, we all have a bias, but like Anybody my bias tells you that they're not biased is no, lying. lying. And you should run the other way. <laughs> I'm super biased. And like, I'm an ICU nurse and our hospitals were protested and I will not maintain neutrality on that. That was a really despicable, despicable event. 
Um, but part of the problem with that is what we in the sort of the left lying group did was just be like, this is, these beliefs are ridiculous. They're unfounded. There's nothing to support them. And it got to the point where we were just like, you're dumb. And guess what? Zero conversations happen well when you literally call on somebody's intelligence. Yes. It doesn't help. And, and yes, it comes from a place of exasperation. It comes from all these things, but it's, it's absolutely detrimental to forging communication and, um, trying to come to some middle ground. Like that is not where the middle lies at all. And I'm incredibly guilty of that from, you know, that period of time for sure. Yeah. Well, here's the thing when groups feel mistreated or, um, disrespected, what happens? They close ranks. They become more insular, more defensive, more punitive, totally. even more us versus them. Totally. It's just our nature as humans, because we want to protect ourselves and we want to protect our, you know, quote unquote tribe. Um, but it, here's the thing too. I mean, really, regardless of what side of the political spectrum that you sit on, people are not wrong to feel frustrated and be angry and want change. hundred percent. You know, I think it's really about where that anger and frustration should be directed that mm -hmm. starts to become what becomes polarizing for people. You know, again, the idea that like education systems with middle-class frameworks spent years solely defining racism and white supremacy as being about individual behaviors rather than mm. systemic problems kind of back us into a corner, you know, where radicalized people are able to kind of neutralize the claim that it's boosting white supremacist forces because it's all just individual people rather than the system that's really rigged against most people. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's like a huge, the, the individualism component mm -hmm. is huge. And that's been the, you know, when you're looking at public health, public health is not individual and it's not supposed to be, and it never has supposed, that has never been the purpose of public health. So when you have a public health crisis, a global public health crisis and public health's goal and this isn't a secret, this is legitimately its goal is to protect the largest amount of people. Right. But that doesn't mean you're protecting everybody. You're right. literally, it's totally a numbers game. And you're like, what measures keep the largest number of people safe? There's outliers. And yep. there might be a large, the outliers might be a large group. It's just a smaller group than, than, the, than, than the others. Exactly. Right. Yeah. So when it's you like that moral dilemma, like a fully, you know, a train is rushing towards a mama pushing a baby carriage. If you stop the train, you'll kill everyone on board. But if you don't stop the train, you're going to kill the mom and the baby. Like, yeah. Yeah. So do, do you, you save 300 people or do you save two? That's right. exactly totally. But there's nothing people aren't valued individually that way because that's actually not the purpose. And I think that's where uh, the really poor PR and communication that happened from a government perspective mm -hmm. was a real disadvantage. It was a real, they, it was totally a fallacy on the, the system, the communication yeah. part. Yeah. 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 And again, it's, I think, you know, one of the ways we can kind of like back ourselves out of this a little bit is to highlight where we see failings, regardless of where we sit. I think mm -hmm. sometimes, and I've, I know I've heard this from, you know, people who I know personally, who were 
were and are within the wellness world who have kind of gone through this shift is like, oh, like, oh, you love Trudeau so much. I'm like, no, no I, don't. <laughs> I super don't. I have a lot of criticisms for him. We can vocalize those criticisms. We don't have to be afraid to be critical of everyone on both sides to, you know, sort through and decide what we believe. But I think the more we can have those conversations, the more those bridges start to get built because this is something else I find really interesting at least for me of the people that I know, I don't know that anyone who I've seen kind of go through this radicalization would call themselves activists or even would call themselves right-wing. I think they see themselves as just asking questions and just mm. ordinary people standing up for their freedoms. And mm. the right, by the alt-right, sorry, has made that a really easy place to do that and to be that person. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they honestly, like from a marketing perspective, it's a really interesting analysis. Right. Right. You did a good job. <laughs> <laughs> so that about wraps up most of what we're going to talk about today. I think kind of like to put like a cherry on the top of this, what I see the biggest problem with all of this is that the further the wellness world becomes radicalized, the less accessible it becomes to the mainstream. So when someone in one sentence is posting about how chiropractic adjustments or Reiki have been helpful for our health challenge, and then in the next sentence are slamming doctors and nurses for being shills for big pharma mm. or calling for the lynching of the prime minister, not to call mm. anyone out specifically. But hello. Yeah. <laughs> it makes complimentary therapies feel fringe or wacky, or even like there's something wrong with them. Then, mm -hmm. so this radicalization has the knock-on effect of further pushing what can be fantastic complementary therapies completely mm -hmm. out of the mainstream. And obviously, as per the literal name of this podcast, I believe that our strength is when we can have it all. I can use acupuncture and Tylenol and Cairo and my doctor. And we live at a time when there is such incredible breadth of options for treating our health. And when the power of the alternative is diluted by this political radicalization, it further entrenches this binary left, right, us, them, medicine alternative, where the power really lies in the middle and being able to take from both sides. Well, and that's where the terms complementary and alternative are actually really important to define, uh -huh. right? Because you're describing using treatments um, you know, that are complementary to each other. And even, I mean, we have for decades in the hospital system, the Western Westernized medicine hospital system had, oh, I don't know what the proper term is, but it's basically like an out, um, a practitioner. It's like a release form to have a practitioner from outside the hospital come in and do whatever. So people commonly, for example, do massage therapy. Um, but it's like anything. And you just have to sign the liability form saying that, Hey, if something goes wrong, it's not the hospital's fault. If something because goes wrong with your Reiki practitioner, you can't sue the hospital for that. Totally. And what yeah. we've seen more with COVID is people wanting, um, COVID treatments that actually aren't approved for use in COVID right. and they're not evidence-based. So physicians who are evidence-based, particularly at a teaching hospital, they're like, well, no, no, we won't do that. There's, there's more evidence that this will cause harm than good. We won't do that. And so fam, you know, in order to appease families, um, we'll, they'll, they'll have to relinquish all liability from giving a medication that, you know, isn't proven to be effective at all and very well might lead to like cardiac arrest for some of them. Right. Right. Um, and that's not the hospital's fault. Right. And but I mean, you can have those forms. You can, you can advocate for yourself to have complementary therapy within a Westernized hospital setting, but you also have to take on the responsibility for right. that. 
And that's well, where the problem is, right? People don't want to take over That's that. such a beautiful point because until you and I had this conversation a few weeks ago and I, I literally had no idea. I didn't know. I mean, I haven't spent much time in the hospital as that's a, a, that's a good receiving thing. end patient. So I'm not <laughs> sad about that. But to know that, you know, it is really our job to be educated and to figure this stuff out. A lot of people don't have the bandwidth for that. Again, no. especially when we're looking at, you know, stagnant wages, you know, increasing inflation, people are literally putting all of their energy into just trying to survive. Um, I know at some point we're going to have like a, the extreme capitalization of everything <laughs> episode, yeah. I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, that, that I think it's, it's easy on both sides to just throw the baby out with the bathwater. When the reality mm-hmm. is you can have alternative therapies in a clinical setting, you can, you know, still use prescription medication. If you, you know, also want to use essential oils and, and acupuncture, you can have all of those things. And I think, again, our strength comes from when we can find the bevy of things that, either we know work for us or we believe might work for us, but we want to try them. I think those are the places where there isn't, um, the, the farther both points become radicalized, the less likely people are to take from either one of those sides. Totally. Well, you end up, yeah, you ostracize, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Again, we love us humans. We just love the binary. We really do. And I, mm-hmm. and I, I hope, and I believe that as we see, you know, what we're starting to see within other realms of the binary breakdown, whether that's, you know, gender or political parties, I hope that we continue to see that middle ground start to come out in other things too, because I really do believe that's, that's the strength and the power that we have as people in truly making our own choices in whatever that looks like for us. Totally. And I think honestly, just seeing how quiet a lot of those radicalized um, individuals have become since the rain, the war in Ukraine. Um, and whether that be, as we talked about in disinformation because of the disabling of Russian <laughs> propaganda, which is honestly fascinating that, that you think nobody really cares about Canadian politics, but evidently that sure shifted when Russia didn't have Twitter anymore. (laughs) Just saying the Trudeau memes dropped substantially when the Russian Twitter got disabled. Yeah. I feel Um, like Canada, we're always afraid we're like a chip on our shoulder. Like, but nobody cares about Canada. Like, no, no, don't worry. Russia (laughs) evidently did. Yeah. 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 But I think that, um, hopefully just sort of the, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm hoping that seeing really significant, horrific things happening across the world. And, you know, let's just say it, people that look like us, we sure do have a heart with the binary. Yeah, We sure do have a great, do a great job as humans of when someone doesn't look like mm-hmm. us, or we don't feel like they represent us. It's, it somehow seems that Yemen just hasn't right. existed. Right. But now right. it's, you know, a country where we can Syrian refugees no Ukrainian refugees yes yeah like it's yeah like yeah I mean that's its own giant topic that's another but yeah when you when psychology comes in and it's you know a group that you uh as I'm saying like collective you collective we Mm -hmm. white society um recognize and can sort of see ourselves in it 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 hits differently. And that's, once again, that's psychology. I'm not saying that's a good thing. (laughs) We we can call things out for being the way they are without. Yeah. 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 uh, Yeah. 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 No, it's terrible. It's a horrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. 
but I mean, the wellness space has been a bit quieter and I'm, I'm not complaining about it. <laughs> well, and I think this, <laughs> this is the other thing, right? And I think, um, you know, the more that we can be, and I touched on this a little bit already, but the more that we can continue to express our own frustrations, the more we open up a dialogue to find that middle ground. Um, mm -hmm. It kind of starts to neutralize that us versus them a little bit. Like, you know, we're all angry at a system that's left us overworked and underpaid. We're all angry at the billions that CEOs make while we lose our jobs. We're all angry at oil and gas subsidies while the planet burns, or the fact that somehow we have money for weapons for other countries, but not clean drinking water for all Canadians. Mm -hmm. Those are things that we are all frustrated with. And when I think that coming back to that, I love, I just keep coming back to one of my favorite Glennon Doyle quotes, which is just, we belong to each other. Mm -hmm. when we can remember that this is a shared human experience that we're all having and that we actually have more in common than we do not, the more we can come back and remember that, that this is, this is the goal. This is the goal ultimately is that we remember how to look after each other. Yeah. I, I know that's so true. Glennon always, always, <laughs> always Glennon. <laughs> Never not Glennon. <laughs> Never not Glennon. <laughs> Um, all right. I think that about wraps up everything I have to say about that. Anything else you want to pitch in before we wrap this bad boy up today? No, I think that's, that's pretty good. I mean, I think it's just like you said, and to Glennon's point, <laughs> it's, it's a circle, right? Mm -hmm. So like we legitimately are all closer than we think, whether we want to agree yes. with it or not, yes. because Glennon's always right. <laughs> I'm just going to pedestalize Glenn until the cows come home. No problems there. <laughs> You'll not get a fight from me. so much for listening to meet me in the middle. We really appreciate your support. And if you could do us a big favor and subscribe and share this podcast, it would mean the world to us.